Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from the Carol Shields Auditorium at Millennium Library in Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 40 First Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing A Grandmother Begins the Story by Michelle Porter. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I think I'd like to try turning into a bison for a while, too. Across the table from me is... Uh, I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I have nothing clever to say this week, this month, this month. And across the table from me is... I'm Trevor. I'm the branch head of the Louis Riel Library, and I think Louis Riel probably enjoyed the occasional uh, Métis jig in his time. I have no proof of that. It's very likely. Oh, yeah, for sure. A good book can carry me away from an ever-engined ordinary you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you, and we'd love to hear a bit of your story too. But don't wait until you're in the spirit world, because we know time works differently there. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, and then Trevor is going to give us a summary of the book. Michelle Porter. She is a writer and academic. She has a BA in journalism, an MA in folklore, and another MA in English, and a PhD in geography. She's from a long line of Métis storytellers and a member of the Manitoba Métis Federation. Her first book, which is a collection of poetry called Inquiries, was published in 2019 and was shortlisted for the Pat Lothar Memorial Award. Her second book, 2020's Approaching Fire, was creative nonfiction about her great-grandfather, who was a fiddler from the Red River. It was shortlisted for the Indigenous Voices Award. In 2002, she published Scratching River, which explores her Métis heritage through her older brother's story. Uh, Grandmother Tells the Story, which came out this year, is her first work of fiction. She's won numerous awards for her poetry and journalism and has been published in literary journals and magazines across Canada. She currently is teaching creative writing and Métis literature at Memorial University, and her academic work focuses on home, memory, and women's changing relationships with the land. All right. So, A Grandmother Begins the Story by Michelle Porter. Now, it's kind of an interesting, complicated story that uh, the first question I had was, well, which grandmother and which story? So, in fact, there are, I would say, five main characters and at least two of them could be the grandmothers, maybe three, depending on how far you want to go. So I thought maybe we'd just talk a little bit about some of the stories that intertwine. So we have the youngest of the main characters, Carter. She's a young mom who is recently separated from her husband, and she has recently reconnected with her birth mom, Allie. Uh, because she was placed for adoption when she was a baby. And so she's learning about her culture for the first time and and trying to reconcile with her mom and, and all the feelings of abandonment and uh, not belonging that come along with that. And so then Allie's mother is Lucy. 
Lucy and Allie have a very, very fraught relationship. And so Lucy has cut out the middleman completely and reached out to Carter, who she thinks will help her get the means to end her life. We have Lucy's mother, Genevieve. And uh, Genevieve is a woman in her late 70s, early 80s, who has received a diagnosis that she is not going to live for very much longer, but she is determined that she is going to get herself clean off of uh, alcohol before she passes into the afterlife. And so at the ripe old age of whatever she is, she checks herself into a rehab center. And then Genevieve's mother, Mame, is the matriarch of this entire line of women. And she has passed over into the afterlife, but she still has ties to this life. She can't seem to let go or there's unfinished work to be done before she can join all of her ancestors. So all of these stories are intertwined and interconnected. And then there's also another character, Dee, who is a bison. And she is given just as much storyline or room on the page as these other characters. And her story is no less interesting and heartbreaking about falling in love and having a child and separation and betrayal as well. So all together, we can talk about which grandmother is the grandmother and maybe which story is the story. And Mm -hmm. that's my summary. That's as good a summary as I can imagine, because this one, there are so many interlocking storylines. It's really tricky to kind of summarize it quickly. How did you guys find it? I struggled with this book. I think the writing is beautiful. Uh, I think we can, I can really tell that Michelle Porter is a poet. But I just, I guess I found it a bit muddled. A lot of characters to keep straight. I kept having to remind myself who was the mother or grandmother of who. I felt like the storylines didn't always intersect in ways that were super important to the narrative, which is maybe why I kept getting the characters confused. Like at times it just felt like a bunch of short stories that had been cut up and then interspersed together. Yeah, so that's what I didn't like about it. But I mean, at the same time, I think that Porter's trying to move away from a traditional kind of like Western white narrative structure uh, with a defined plot and a beginning and a middle and an end. And maybe this is trying to replicate more of that oral storytelling tradition. So maybe I just found that disorientating and distracting. I guess I wanted to like this book more than I did. And so I'm I'm trying to find ways to justify it in my mind. Well, you know, I really leaned into this one. And for some of the same reasons that Toby just said, like I found it initially difficult to really connect the characters to each other and how they're related. So I found myself actually working, writing like a family tree as I was going and with little arrows back and forth. And I've just re- replicated a little bit of it here just for my own notes. And by doing that, I felt like I got into the story more than if I was just sort of passively reading it, because as I was jotting down these notes on all these characters and maybe their characteristics and how they're related, I, I started to feel like I got to know these characters, but not in the conventional way you get to know a character in a novel. You, you sort of came at them from the side or from snippets like you like you would in a family where you would hear stories about a relative that maybe you haven't met or we all know in our in our families we always have these stories that seem to always get told at family events and uh, they come back and they become part of a mythology 
and all of these characters were, you know, all kind of broken and, and obviously intergenerational trauma is a huge theme throughout this uh, in so many different ways. And, and I think you're right, Toby, like it, the plots, they don't really maybe mesh in the conventional sense. And I'm thinking like, yeah, maybe that was intentional. Maybe we're supposed to look at this like, no, this it doesn't all add up and this isn't all in a, in a line and, and it's messy and it's sort of moving at its own pace and its own beat. The the whole thing with the involving not just the bison as a character, but there were other unconventional characters. There, there were the the two dogs that uh, had a had a lovely little relationship when they were they were put into the kennel, and there were there was even Genevieve's car, and even the land itself. So it's kind of it kind of made me think, you know, how all things are related and and related. Maybe this is a one kind of literal way of showing that. I don't know. When I started this book, like I'll say the first forty pages or so. I didn't think I was going to like it because it's clearly literary, not the more popular fiction that I tend to find easier and more enjoyable to read. And when you start anthropomorphizing like the ground and the animals and stuff, that often doesn't work for me because I just find people are really bad at anthropomorphizing animals, especially. I, I believe animals have their own internal life and that they it would be interesting to know how they think, but I just think we're not good at knowing how to do that. Isn't it just food, 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 food? <laughs> no, though, it no. isn't. I mean, do you have a pet? Yeah, I have a cat. Yeah. Well, your cat has a deep, rich life, right? Like, well, yeah, it's just it's hard to figure out. food it, and love. Yeah, but... Uh, they still, I I feel like uh, animals have personalities and individual things, but usually I don't like it when they're anthropomorphized in novels because I find it tends to be too cutesy and such. So I was prepared to not like this book, but I warmed up to it over time, which I wasn't expecting. I'm not sure exactly why, because none of those elements really changed. It's There's a lot of like magical realism in the book, um, a lot of the different descriptions of spirituality in the afterlife and uh, things like that, which, again, are not normally my cup of tea. But something about it still kind of worked when I just, I don't know, got into the flow of it. The writing didn't like catch me like it wasn't like breathtaking writing from my perspective, but it was solid and it moved forward. And the characters were very flawed, all of them. They all had issues coming from their background and their experiences and they were all trying to figure something out and they were trying to find their place and they kind of manage it sort of although again also i don't really know what to take from the book in terms of meaning i feel like there were a lot of different stories and a lot of elements you can draw from it and there probably is a more grand narrative you can put to it that I that I didn't get from it, but it didn't bother me that much with this one. I just I felt like the ending was satisfying enough. So I'm not like you know I'm not gushing over the book, but it's better than I expected it to be, and I think a lot of people might enjoy it. But it is a non-traditional narrative, or not from the traditions I'm used to reading. And we were talking a bit about this before the podcast, too, but with all the different characters and all the different things, I wish I had gotten the audiobook version of this, because when I looked at the audiobook listing on Libby, there are a lot of different voice actors listed. So I'm assuming that that means that each character in the book got their own voice actor, and I feel like the interlocking narrative with those different voices in your ear probably would work really, really well with this story. 
but yeah, um, my impression of it was, you know, it's better than I expected it to be, and I ended up enjoying reading it. What you said with Twig, something that I had uh, thought too, that the novel as a whole felt to me like um, some of those sort of ancient teachings that that we may hear and we get from it what we need to get from it. And different people will get different things. And so that's why it's interesting to talk about, to hear what parts of it kind of spoke to us and might be different and what parts stood out to us because it might be different for any, everyone who reads it. It's kind of almost like a mirror that's being held up to us. And uh, I have to admit, it took a very long time, longer than I, I need, I'd like to admit, uh, for to me to figure out in the, the Bison chapters that they were actually talking about Bison. I was like, why do all these women have beards? <laughs> and, 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 and it took me like, so I'm just saying like, yeah, some people are quicker than others. And I, I'm on the, the end of the curve. I did appreciate the fact that all of the chapters or sections had the name of the person that was about mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. It made it a lot easier for me to remember all the characters and to, after several of the sections like that, to uh, have a history of them in my head. So it make it a little easier to follow. Because, yeah, there were a lot of characters to keep track of and the relationships were important, but also not always super explicitly described each time. Would you say there was a main character Although there are multiple characters, was there any one story that maybe either of you connected with over any others? I liked the Carter and the Genevieve stories the most. When I reached those chapters, I was happy to be there again. Carter, I guess, just because it's the most, she's the youngest, and I feel like I related to her the most out of anyone, and Jen just because she was, she was funny. I liked the Bison stuff a lot. I'll have to admit. And again, for someone who doesn't normally like anthropomorphizing the animals, I enjoyed the bison story. Can we talk about the bison story? Yes. Because yeah. I couldn't quite see how it fit in here. I mean, it's obviously like a story of colonization and multi-generational trauma. But I mean, at the heart of it, it's just about like a horny buffalo who makes terrible decisions. Yeah, right? but that's pretty much the same as the story for all of the humans, too. Right. They all ended up in bad relationships or something about their relationship was like a driving factor in their lives. But I wasn't on D's side in the same way I was on the human side. Like, I just feel like D was just making these awful decisions at the detriment of her son. She was just like lovesick and just going after Jay and didn't care about anything else. Yeah, like the main character from our last novel, which you really liked. Yeah, good point. There's the buffalo <laughs> doing the same stuff. Because it's a, it was a buffalo. Yeah. We're yeah. all horny buffaloes at heart. I'm, I think Toby, you know, I think that's really one of the truths that come well, out of this book. And, and the fact is all bison are horny, literally. <laughs> they, they have them right on the front of the head there. Mm, good point. Good point. Yeah. I mean, part of the reason I like the bison story is just I, I like cattle and... <laughs> Oddly enough, right? Like cows are beautiful and they're sweet. And I'm just, just kind of, I guess, maybe transferring some of those feelings to the bison, just them herding together and uh, nuzzling. They're bumping their heads against each other and then still dealing with social or like community issues, you know? And for me, the bison, they almost were eternal. Like some of the stories with D, you almost forgot that it was taking place 
during like post contact. These are these are bison living on the land, and then you're reminded, no, there's fences and they're getting out. And but then there's also the bison in the afterlife that are sort of helping Mame along. And are they the same bison? Are they? Uh, there's connect. There's a, they're like a, there's a connection that can almost travel between worlds and. Did, did I have this right where in the bison story, part of it was they were trying to reintroduce the herd, like the herd had been decimated. And so a lot of it was trying to like there was like a, there were two facilities, right, where they one on the Canadian side, one on the American side. And they were trying to almost reintroduce bison into into the environment. Is that part of it? That seems to be it, right? Yeah. Like, because when the protesters were there trying to prevent the group of bison we were following who had broken through the fence, who were trying to prevent them getting shot, there was some mention of they broke out of the park. Yeah. So I'm assuming that that's like a park that's being used as a preserve to help reintroduce and, and like preserve the bison. So, yeah. Uh, and it does sound like they came from the U.S. side. I was often confused about where everybody was, too, because mm-hmm. there was that mention at one point of being in the U.S. And I thought, but wait, they're Métis? Like, I always associate the Métis with, well, this region of the continent. And I didn't imagine a lot in the U.S. But then later on, they kind of mention Alberta, B.C., Winnipeg. Uh, so then it brings it back to Canada. But the bison thing I was really uncertain of until it sounded like, yeah, they had basically gotten into Alberta by breaking through the fence and crossing the border. There was some vagueness in the story where it was a little difficult to tell. She doesn't spell it out. She just lets you kind of piece together those little bits. Yeah, and I found like the vagueness what happened more in the in the bison chapters than in the others because you're right it was vague and then all of a sudden she's mentioning like the, you know the deerfoot trail in calgary and claire's home and like you say other places that you could really pinpoint where, where these stories are taking place for me i think my favorite storyline was the genevieve storyline I, I just i felt like i could kind of relate to her spirit it kind of reminded me of my own grandma in terms of just the determination and and the humor and also i had i was getting kind of like margaret lawrence vibes off of her kind of a stone angel kind of character so i yeah i really enjoyed you know her time talking to the other patients and the um the staff and reading their cards and and how she was able to reconnect with her the ghost of her sister through the music who's uh, gabe I, I wasn't, I didn't quite get that. He was a ghost, right? Like a spirit? He must have been. I mean, the only thing I could think of is Gabriel Dumont, but okay. it wasn't tied into. And then it, in that very first chapter with Genevieve, she's talking to somebody, but then you find out they're not really there, right? She's talking yeah, to a ghost. Her, her okay. husband. Gabe was right. the assistant there, or he was one of the staff at the facility, wasn't well, he? Well, she kind of meets him out in the in the in outside, the but then he appears at the oddest times. Yeah, and I, yeah, I did and definitely get the sense and disappears. that he he was more than more than a helper. Or <laughs> oh, okay, you know yeah. that didn't occur to me while reading it. I just assumed he was one of the staff, and that he like maybe a little inappropriately was showing up at like midnight to talk to <laughs> people, but like. Given the kind of irregular nature of a lot of the interactions between people, I didn't really. But I guess that's a possibility, yeah. Because she was talking to her dead sister. And her dead husband before she husband. went to the the uh, facility. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that wasn't spelled out, but now I'm now I don't know. Was her her husband wasn't Gabe, was it? No. no his name had, was like a Robert name. or something, I think. Okay. Again, that was the first time I was like, wait a second now. It's yeah, it's just this vagueness coming back that just kind of muddles the water, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But that is kind of a theme. Or like, 
like Trevor was saying before, it's messy. Uh, all the characters' lives are messy. The way they interact, the way they make decisions, and the whole story is messy. Kind of like when they're talking about uh, the music. There was a lot of talk about music and how they're playing it crooked. They're not. It's not. It doesn't get played straight. Mm-hmm. And the whole story is like that. Nothing is straight. It's not a straightforward story. And so some of that vague, and I mean, some of the characters like uh, Carter seems to go on a bit of a bender here or there, seems to be having difficulty sorting out her thoughts at different times. So some of the details kind of get muddled because you're seeing it from their perspective in each section and it's messy. Yeah. In fact, while you're saying that, I just, um, I just happened to turn to the book randomly. I opened to a chapter that was just called Mame and the Crookedness of Time. <laughs> so even the time is crooked. And despite the crookedness of the story, there were a few moments that I thought were really, really kind of artfully done. There, there was a section towards the end of the novel where the idea of like sweat and heat it was a common theme. Like we had uh, chapters back to back to back where we had Mame in the sweat lodge on the brink of uh, the afterlife doing the work that she needed to do to, to go on. And that was interspersed with Genevieve playing the piano in the common room of the rehab center uh, right before that storm of all storms uh, happened. And you could just feel the heat and the humidity in the room. And then it would cut to Carter, who was on that bus, and the air conditioning was broken, and everyone was hot. <laughs> and I just thought, well, that's a very clever through line that's connecting these three characters. And it doesn't, it, you know, I don't think Michelle Porter was hitting us over the head with it, but every once in a while, there were these kind of moments where the story you kind of took a step back and you could see sort of themes that were weaving through all these lives that the characters themselves weren't aware of at the time but that there was sort of the uh, you know a bigger power that was there uh with them i thought that was kind of cool there were some interesting things in there that also i still don't understand so i gotta ask your opinion so carter and grandma lucy and they have their whole back and forth kind of dance about, is she going to get her pills? Is she not? And then she gives her like a bag of a bunch of pills and says, some of them are sugar, some of them are aspirin, some of them are the pills you want. And gives them to her. And then there's the whole, what did you give her? She took all these pills. Now she wants to go to the hospital thing. So it's like, we're like, did she take all of the pills? Um, were they all aspirin? Like, we don't really know. And then there's that like last texts coming from Lucy to Carter, where she says something like, I I don't quite remember exactly what it was, but she says something like, you think I don't know what aspirin and sugar pills look like or taste like? And then she gives kind of an LOL type thing like, and it made me wonder like, wait, were you playing this all along? You just wanted the pill so you could pretend to commit suicide? Like what... What happened exactly there? Page, yeah, 318. She texted, I kept these ones. Makes me happy to keep them close, just in case. You think I can't tell what aspirin is? Think I can't taste sugar? She added a laugh, until you cry emoji. Nothing else. Yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that... I can't, I can't figure out her game there exactly. Or maybe she is just doing that as a like, oh, this didn't work. Oh, well, now I'm going to send a I knew it all anyway type message. Or, you know, I don't know. I mean, she was definitely a gaslighter, and she uh, obviously had a broken relationship with her own daughter, Allie. So maybe that was just one more way to say, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to get the final word in here kind of thing. I don't know. I didn't like Lucy. She was the hardest character to like. Yeah. 
I mean, naming your your daughter Alan because you wanted a son, and then always referring to them as Alan, even though they don't want to be called Alan, it's like that's not nice. <laughs> I did love towards the end how Carter gathered up her. I don't know, would they be her like, stepsisters or her her like half her sisters. half sisters? Yeah. Uh, and, and made that run to the rehab to rescue Genevieve because yeah. they get a call. I just that whole thing was just so like madcap. And then there's that guy, Jesus, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yes. shows up at the right time. And, uh, you know, there were moments like that that were just sort of kind of fun, if you can call it, uh, parts of this book fun. Yeah. And if you want to put a layer of implied meaning over this, uh, someone named Jesus who can walk on water <laughs> with the boat, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He was also the only man in the novel who didn't come off as, you know, a jerk. <laughs> well, there's Gabe, who might or might not be a spirit. But True. Yeah. He was okay. And what about Carter's husband? Like, yeah. He was okay, he was I thought. Okay. It, I it mean, it's hard to tell. Yeah. I mean, we were seeing it mostly from her perspective. You could definitely see his perspective, where it's like, uh, you know, you're you're kind of flaking out. Can we just keep the kids so that he'll have a stable home? I mean, that sorry makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, true. We don't really know that much about him, just that it wasn't working between them. And given Carter's behavior in the story, you can kind of see why maybe that would be the case. Carter was struggling a lot. The whole trip out to BC with uh, a random Englishman. Oh, yeah, what a creep that guy was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That whole thing made me uncomfortable, just yeah, the way people were groping her and... Uh, being very, um, I don't know, inc- incredibly inappropriate. but And she went along with it. Yeah, all. she went along with it, which was a little uh, troublesome as well. Very troublesome as well, because you want to you wanna be on her side. But then she's willingly going along with this guy who's obviously a big creep. And, and same has a with bunch the, of creep the, friends. So. Yeah, and the bathroom, the bus bathroom thing as well. Yeah. 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 It left me unsettled. Yes. Yeah. So we talked about the buffalo. What about the dogs? What purpose to the narrative do the dogs have? Lottery and Perkins. Were they dogs? Were Lottery and Perkins dogs? Because they keep talking about, you know, I'm enjoying this body. You know, you've been around for a thousand years or something like that. They're talking to each other like they're spirits who have been around for millennia. But they're in the body of dogs. Yes. And that's the thing. One of the, the I forget which one it was, but the one who was uh, more barky and run aroundy y um, <laughs> was really enjoying being in a dog and uh, enjoying all the dog sensations and the dog actions and things like that. While the other one was more like, yeah, you know, we're in a dog. So what? But I, yeah, I didn't really like they were almost guardian angels, guardian spirits who were protecting Genevieve, but as her dogs. So they were near her, except when she went away, and then they had... That was really vague and unclear, too. I like the way they kind of made the best of their situation, that they're in this kennel, so they start having auditions for a little a little <laughs> yeah. musical or yeah. something. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you, I, it's n- very Disney. Yeah, or kind of like, you know, once their once they're, you know, master or owner is out of the way or out of sight, they're kind of like, okay, well, you know, we're not going to forget her, but... Let's, uh, you know, you know, let's do this thing. Let's occupy ourselves. I, 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 yeah, what was their purpose in the story, though? I mean, I guess at the very end, they're retrieved and they sniff out, is it Carter's pregnancy? And they're like, oh, I think this one. And that's where the J and Sol in the names come back. 
Right. Um, I don't know why you'd need these dogs present throughout the narrative just to have them do this, this thing at the end. It may be part of the world building where, because, you know, the idea that there are old spirits in the world moving through it is just kind of maybe a part of the world. And these are just that reminder. They, They look like dogs. They sound like dogs. They run around and sniff and take scratches. But also, they're not just dogs. So maybe don't just treat dogs like dogs. Maybe. I don't know. I was expecting more from them in the story, but they kind of dropped off for a bit and there were large sections where they just weren't really connected to the story at all. Yeah, they definitely don't get as much narrative as like the buffalo. Yeah, I would say the buffalo is probably one of the three main storylines. If you want like I think, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, Carter, Genevieve and Dee with maybe Mame thrown in there, too, just as kind of the glue. But the, and the other characters are sort of well, obviously less. I found interesting, too, the, in the bison story, how the herd, all the aunties in the herd, they were very much like, don't go beyond the fences. And they had developed kind of the storyline of the fences are protection and such, which kind of flies in the face of my imagination on how uh, bison might feel about, no, we want to run free. We want to, you know, uh, thunder across the prairies and such. And that would be the tradition and the story. But the tradition in the story is much more practical. Like, no, these days, like, you, you don't go with Thunder. If you stay in the fences, stay here. Oh, they're trying to herd you into a truck. Go with them. Mm-hmm. You know, let them take you. That was interesting. Because in this type of story where you have these animals who would run free in the wild and then they are kind of caged and restricted, the storyline I'm familiar with is we will break free, right? Which practically in real terms is a death sentence because no one's going to let a bunch of white bison run free through a city or something like that. They're going to shoot them like they did with the helicopter when they actually did go out. So the herd has adapted to the situation and has decided these are the stories. This is what will keep our group safe. And so that becomes the story they tell. But I don't know what lesson to draw from that other than Practical considerations maybe trump the uh, this noble idea of being completely independent and free. I mean, I guess you get that with Lottery and Perkins too, right? Like they once they get to the kennel, they're not trying to escape; they're just making the yeah. best of their situation. Yeah, and they do suggest that they could escape if yeah. they wanted to. If they it, didn't have to stay. Yeah. Although it's not clear if that just means the spirits could leave the dogs there, or if the dogs themselves would escape. I don't know. That kind of brings me back to my like initial question, like which grandmother and which story? Because one of the chapters, actually maybe the only chapter in the book that's actually called A Grandmother Begins the Story, mm-hmm. happens a good ways into the story, which made me think that, are they trying to say that, you know, all stories, we can't, when we begin a story, we're not really beginning a story. And when we end a story, the story doesn't end. The story has been, we're just picking up the threads of a story for a while and telling it. And then passing it on, like Dee's son, Tull? Tell. Tell. Like, he's the story. He's the next generation. Like, there was one time when the, the grandmothers, the bison grandmothers, were talking about how the calves will lead us. And I like the idea that it's the next generation that will show the way. And uh, almost like, I don't know, like a, like a river, right? You know, when you get into a river, it's started somewhere else. And when you get out of the river downstream, it can, carries on. And we're only in it for a part of it. So, I mean... Again, that doesn't really get us any closer to which grandmother, which story, but it's another I, point. I kind of think Solon is the grandmother in the title. 
because that because like of that, yeah because that section is titled like you said a grandmother begins the story and that's that element right there where she is literally starting a story Mamey isn't telling anyone a story through this she's going through her own story and we're hearing her tell it but it's not telling it's beginning true yeah. see i thought well, that, was, that I, blows up my no, <laughs> see i thought it was genevieve because her action of checking herself into rehab standing up and taking a stand and, and saying no more puts a lot of these other events kind of in motion i thought and so she begins the story but i don't know it's weak it's weak <laughs> it's a weak theory trevor <laughs> all um, the grandmothers and all the stories true Although there are so many grandmothers. I mean, like yeah, exactly. Grandma, Grandma Lucy, is she telling a story? Yeah. yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, she is unhappy. She wants to die. She's enlisting the help of her granddaughter. Well, but she says she wants to get to the spirit world before her mom. So before Genevieve. It was never ex really explained why. To spite her? Hard to say. I thought it was to get there so she wouldn't be alone when she gets there. But that doesn't make any sense either because Velma is already there, her sister. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, Jen is already old. Like, she's the oldest, so she would yeah. likely yeah. be there before her anyway. Lucy's motivations were the ones I found hardest to grasp. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. And her whole thing with Carter about, like... You know, why are you asking me to get these for you? That's because you're not really part of the family. But also she didn't want someone else to get it for her. It had to be Carter's hands that did it. And Carter didn't understand that. And I certainly didn't understand that. Uh, it seemed a weird thing to do. And it does kind of tie in with Allie's thing about how, you know, Lucy was toxic. Uh, she's you, you won't have a good outcome if you interact with her. She's trying to warn Carter away from her. And nothing that happened makes Allie's admonition wrong. It probably would have been better not to interact with her at all. But she did anyway. So many open questions. Mm -hmm. We've talked about it for a while, and I think we can agree it's pretty open-ended. Um, and there's a lot of different ways you can go with it. Our discussion here, you can probably go quite a bit further if you're interested in a particular aspect, but do you guys have any final comments you'd like to make about it before we go to our next section? Oh, we're speechless. <laughs> okay. So yeah, it's an interesting story, definitely different both structurally and in content than a lot of other stuff that I've read. You may find it interesting too, dear reader. So with that said, let's go on to our next section can you tell me a book I would also like? Anyone got a recommendation? I mean, I... Or, or, <laughs> I wanted to jump in because I thought I made a really obvious choice, but I see that you did not choose the book that I've also chosen, so... I bet you're making a huge assumption that this book is the book I'm going to talk about. Uh, fair enough, No, yeah. it is, okay. it is. <laughs> <laughs> and your assumption is correct. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, but you, you can go. jump in. No, go. No, go, yeah, go. go. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, a book that I think that you may enjoy if you also enjoyed A Grandmother Begins the Story is something called Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson. And the similarities to the book that we just discussed are that uh, just like Michelle Porter, Lisa Bird Wilson is uh, a poet 
mostly. Uh, she has a background in poetry. Um, she's from Saskatchewan, an indigenous writer. And, but she, this is her first fiction title. And it is about a woman in her 30s named Ruby. And when we meet her in the first chapter, she's kind of a mess. She uh, has been through a series of failed relationships. She's an alcoholic. And she is trying to figure out a way that she can sleep with her uh, therapist. Uh, at the, towards the end of the first chapter, the therapist asks her, well, what kind of kid were you? And that sets into motion a bunch of flashbacks that are told in non-chronological order. Each chapter after the first chapter uh, is from a different point of view of somebody that has shaped Ruby's life. And uh, not only is it a different person, but a different time period. And so the time period stretches far back as 1950 and is up to uh, 2018, which was present day for the course of the book. And we learned that Ruby was born to two teenage parents when his, her mom was white, her dad was indigenous, and she was placed for adoption in a, a family who, uh, she says, weren't rich enough to care too much about uh, her indigenous background. And uh, her mom would always make her wear big hats so that she wouldn't tan so much. And her adoptive father was an alcoholic and left the family. And she was left with her mom. And her mom wouldn't help her search for her birth family. And on and on, she finds out about a grandfather who went through the horrors of residential school. And then she connects with her birth family eventually. And so it's, it's, you get to get a, a full sort of picture of, of who Ruby is by the time you get to the end of the book. And it's, it's funny, but it's also very heartfelt, big hearted, I think would be one way to describe it. So probably Rudy by Lisa Bird Wilson. Mm hmm. Okay, so my very obvious recommendation uh, that I thought both of you would choose is either The Break or The Strangers. Did, did you know? Okay, all right. I guess they weren't <laughs> as obvious as I thought. You recommended The Break recently, so I'm yeah. going to recommend The Strangers um, by Katerina Vermed. So they're, they're companion books. Um, the Strangers came out in 2021. The Break is from 2016. The Strangers is not... It's not a sequel, but it has a character who's in the break, is in The Strangers. And I think it's fair to say that Michelle Porter was very influenced by these books for writing. When writing her book, they're both about Métis families. They deal primarily with women and girls. It's a multi-generational story. The chapters are told from alternating perspectives of all the characters. But Vermette's storytelling is, is more straightforward than Porter's. I think it's easier to decipher the relationships between people. And um, Vermette is just such a phenomenal writer. Uh, she really has so much empathy for her characters. So I just pulled up the publisher description of the book because it's been a while since I read it. So I'll, I will just read that one. After time spent in foster homes, Cedar goes to live with her estranged father. Although she grapples with the pain of being separated from her mother, Elsie, and her sister, Phoenix, she's hoping for a new chapter in her life, only to find herself once again in a strange house surrounded by strangers. From a youth detention center, Phoenix gives birth to a baby she'll never get to raise and tries to forgive herself for all the harm she's caused while wondering if she even should. Elsie, struggling with addiction and determined to turn her life around, is buoyed by the idea of being reunited with her daughters and strives to be someone they can depend on, unlike her own distant mother. These are the strangers, each haunted in her own way. Between flickering moments of warmth and support, the women diverge and reconnect, fighting to survive in a fractured system that pretends to offer success but expects them to fail. Facing the distinct blade of racism from those they trusted most, they urge one another to move through the darkness, all the while wondering if they'll ever emerge safely on the other side. 
So if you couldn't tell from that description, it's a it's a pretty heavy book, but it's set in Winnipeg and it's so lovely. And I just found out that the third and final installment of this trilogy, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, which will be called The Circle, is coming out later this year. Um, mm-hmm. So that's exciting. Uh, put your holds on it because it will be popular. I still haven't read The Strangers, so I definitely should because The Break was amazing. If you like The Break, you'll like The Strangers. Yeah, I think it's hard to go wrong with Katerina Vermette. Yeah. Uh, and I would have picked that, except I had recently <laughs> mentioned the break, and I thought that would be a little too much. It's never bad to recommend her, but, you know, we got to try to mix it up a bit. That's true. So I haven't read anything quite like Grandmother Begins the Story before, so I don't have a good recommendation based on books I've read. So I'm going to suggest a book that Goodreads listed as one that other readers of this book had enjoyed. And based on the description and the author's previous work, I think it's a decent fit, and I'm probably going to want to read this one later, too. Uh, It's Venco by Sherry Demeline. I'll read the description. Lucky St. James, a Métis millennial living with her cantankerous but loving grandmother Stella, is barely hanging on when she discovers she will be evicted from their tiny Toronto apartment. Then one night, something strange and irresistible calls out to Lucky. Burrowing through a wall, she finds a silver spoon etched with a crooked-nosed witch and the word Salem, humming with otherworldly energy. Hundreds of miles away in Salem, Myrna Good has been looking for Lucky. Myrna works for Venco, a front company fueled by vast resources of dark money. Lucky is familiar with the magic of her indigenous ancestors, but she has no idea that the spoon links her to Venco's network of witches throughout North America. Generations of witches have been waiting for centuries for the seven spoons to come together, igniting a new era and restoring women to their rightful power. But as reckoning approaches, a very powerful adversary is stalking their every move. He's Jay Christos, a roguish and deadly witch hunter as old as witchcraft itself. To find the last spoon, Lucky and Stella embark on a rollicking and dangerous road trip to the darkly magical city of New Orleans, where the final showdown will determine whether Venko will usher in a new beginning or remain underground forever. So, not exactly the same as this, but, you what know. What was the book that we read by Dimmeline? I can't uh, remember. Em- Empire the, of oh. uh, Wild. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah the werewolves. Yeah, so, yeah, so I'm already yeah. convinced in her ability to write uh, mystical, magical, interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I think that would be a good one. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein we use words to describe other words because we like words. Who's got a word? I have two words. Two? Yeah. That's um, a lot of words. It is a lot of words. Save one for next month. They don't take a lot of explanation. Um, there are words in Michif, which is one of the languages of the Métis. Michif borrows from Cree and French, and um, like many indigenous languages, it's considered critically endangered. There's not many speakers of it. So the words I've chosen are hello and thank you, which I think like when I travel elsewhere into countries where they don't speak English, I find these two words are are the first ones that I like to learn. So hello is tanshi. So it literally means how, but it also means what is the quality of you. So when you say tanshi, you're not only saying hello, you're also inquiring after the person's well-being, which is nice. And then thank you is Marcy. Um, so we can really see the French influence there. Of course, merci is thank you in French. And in Michif, it's Marcy. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. And those are very good words. Yeah. Although the other words you should learn are where is the bathroom? Yeah, that one's a little more, more complicated. So. <laughs> 
Well, my uh, nerd word comes from about a month a month ago on Twitter. The the Merriam Webster account started a tweet by saying, "Hey, ding dongs." And I thought, boy, if a dictionary calls you a ding dong, you, you should you know pay attention. So it says, "Hey, ding dongs, let's have a chit chat about ablaut reduplication," which is two words, <laughs> but one thing. Never heard of this before. I uh, but if you think about it, so what this thing is all about is that if you have three words, the order usually goes I A O, and the example they give is tic tac toe. I-A-O. If you have two words together, I is the first one, and the second one is either A or O, you know, like click-clack or King Kong. And uh, hmm. it just seems like it's a thing that we know as English speakers. It's not something we've been taught. And they give an example of that's why these following ones don't feel quite right. Hop-hip, raff-riff, spot-spit, flop-flip, zag-zig. Hmm reverse all of those it just feels right mm-hmm. and uh, they're going to say that many brand names utilize uh, our subconscious to their advantage so for example you have kitkat or ziploc tiktok tic-tac ping pong rice right Rice-a-roni, exactly and it, apparently it's so pervasive it even occurs in phrases like big bad wolf live laugh love tick tick boom so that's my word, ablaut reduplication. Uh, well, enough of my jibber jabber. <laughs> I don't mean to be wishy washy, uh, but I do enjoy our monthly chit chats. Nicely done. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm going to just be thinking of that forever now. Yeah, you'll be thinking yeah. of the exceptions and yeah, saying, what about yeah, this? Sure. What about this? Yeah. yeah, you'll have to come back next month with exceptions. Okay. Every single one you find. <laughs> So my word is going to be crooked, which was used throughout the book to describe the way music was played. And I found that very interesting. Uh, The definition of crooked, according to Merriam-Webster, is not straight, as in a road or a river, or dishonest, as in a politician or business person. Uh, I've played instruments of one kind or another over my lifetime, and I've heard many words used to describe styles of play, but I've never heard crooked used in a musical sense before. And that's probably because I never played the fiddle. So I did find a page titled Crooked Tunes on a website about fiddle music around the world that talked about crookedness in fiddle music, so I found this very interesting. Most popular music has a lot of regularities and evenness to it. Uh, The patterns in music are part of what draw us into it. We like them. And there are often an even number of bars, especially in a musical phrase. And often the number of beats in a bar will be even also, like the 4-4 time signature is one of the most popular. And even if you're using an odd number of beats in a bar, like 3-4 time, uh, like waltzing, you usually still have complete bars of music and an even number of bars. Even musical styles that use a lot of syncopation or swing, like jazz, tend to have a traditional structure like that to them. In crooked tunes, though, it's common for phrases to be an odd number of bars, and often... Some of those bars will not be complete. They'll either have too few beats or too many beats. So it's structurally irregular. Uh, they speculate a bit about uh, possible reasons for that. But they did mention specifically that the Métis tradition is one with the largest number of crooked tunes. It tends to be a, a popular characteristic of Métis fiddle music. So I just looked all this up today, uh, and it's making me very curious about how crookedness actually sounds in music because i can't really imagine it easily 
I've not listened to a lot of Métis reels and jigs and stuff like that, and I feel like this is a hole in my musical experience that I gotta maybe fix now because uh, the whole concept of crookedness in music sounds interesting to me. So crooked. My only memory of listening to uh, extended Métis jig music was a few years ago. Remember where the uh, there's the Canada Games were hosted here in Winnipeg, and I was in a choir that was singing at the closing ceremonies. And as the athletes walked in, Sierra Noble and her band were playing a Métis jig while the athletes walked in. And she played for nonstop 25 minutes as every athlete filed into the stadium with like without, I mean, literally missing a beat. But maybe she did miss a few beats because it was crooked. But uh, it was such uh, an amazing experience just to listen to her play seamlessly from one uh, one melody to another for, for a solid 20-25 minutes. We didn't even really touch on the m- music in the book mm-hmm. and how central it was to so many of the characters and seemed to be central to even their uh, the concept of the characters and their culture. And like I said, still a lot of stuff that could be discussed in this book, but yeah, I want to hear some crooked music. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. And next month, we're going to tackle The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman. In a peaceful retirement village, four unlikely friends meet up once a week to investigate unsolved murders. But when a brutal killing takes place on their very doorstep, the Thursday Murder Club find themselves in the middle of their first live case. Elizabeth, Joyce, Ibrahim, and Ron might be pushing 80, but they still have a few tricks up their sleeves. Can our unorthodox but brilliant gang catch the killer before it's too late? Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service. Maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to to read. Read. that might have that vowel thing. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You've ruined me, Trevor. Uh, it, it, it's like when someone shows you what bad kerning looks like for fonts. Oh, uh-huh. And then uh, you can never not see it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> or when someone tells you about the Wilhelm scream. Right. And then you start noticing it in all these films and TV shows. I very much hope I hear the Wilhelm uh, scream tonight because I've got tickets to see the Indiana Jones. Oh. If it doesn't appear in there, it's not a proper Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) They're still putting out Indiana Jones movies. Dude's like 80-something. Yeah, and he looks it. (laughs) Yeah, although they apparently de-age him for some flashback scenes. So I'll see. Hmm. See how it all goes. Yeah. I I I meant to watch them all with Audrey. Uh, to lead up because the three of us are going tonight. I just didn't. So I'm going to throw her into this thing. She's got she have a clue who Indiana Jones is. It's probably kind of cruel. She'll be fine. I think so, right? Yeah. Probably the story will just. Some of those mm. ones are scary. The yeah. uh, like 
Yeah. I, Kalima. Yeah. Kalima. Yeah. I, I have <laughs> nightmares about that. Yeah. Literally? No, no. But okay, like good, when good. I think of Indiana Jones, I think of like being terrified of that scene in particular. Hmm. Where they rip the guy's heart out. Yeah. 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 